Good fight. That's the name of our summer real men Bible study. We'll be going verse by verse through First Timothy. Uh, you and me up here in the mountains, real informal, casual. Twelve weeks looking at an older man named Paul, building up and uh, investing in a younger man named Timothy, teaching him how to be a man of God and fight a good fight. And I'll tell you, in a day when the uh, world has lost its mind and everything's going to hell, a uh, few men need to learn how to fight. I'll see you guys online this summer as we study 1 Timothy, the good fight. All right, guys, welcome back to the uh, Real Men Podcast. This series is a good fight. We're just kind of going through a book of the New Testament, 1 Timothy, uh, Paul, kind of like spiritual father writing to Timothy, kind of like a spiritual son and giving him a little advice. Here's what to do, what not to do. Uh, to grow as a man of God and to fight for the things that matter. And today is uh, week number eight, uh, ignore idiots. And um, and if, if you've been a Christian for more than 15 minutes, um, you know an idiot. The question is, what do you do with an idiot? And it's not an idiot isn't saved and you don't love them. And it's just that they're an idiot, meaning what they're doing and what they're devoted to and what their time and energy is committed to is just stupid. It's not evil. It's just dumb. And uh, this is in 1 Timothy 4, 6 through 16. I'll give you guys kind of backstory. Um, I didn't grow up like some of you. Some of you grew up in evangelical subculture. You grew up in that sort of, uh, you know, Christian bubble of veggie tales and Christian music and VBS and Christian camp and, you know, rapture movies and, you know, fights over Halloween and just the typical evangelical stuff. Maybe you're even homeschooled, which is like, varsity evangelical subculture subterranean level underground and I, that wasn't me i grew up um i grew up down the street from an airport um walking distance to my house uh, were multiple strip clubs uh thankfully i wasn't old enough to go to any so i didn't end up there um green river killer and ted bundy were in my neighborhood and so a lot of prostitution and serial killers and my first job, I lied about my age. I falsified my birth certificate. I got a job at a 7-Eleven as a clerk selling lotto tickets and beer and cigarettes to people who were older than me. And I carded them. I was 15. And uh, I had this voice and uh, facial hair. So maybe I look 17. I don't know. I bought my first car at 15. It was a 1956 four-door Chevy. And I drove myself to work. So at 15... I am work, and this uh, was down the street from a deja vu strip club. And uh, I remember we couldn't keep rubbing alcohol for uh, on the shelves because people would use it to freebase. So I didn't grow up in the safe for the whole family, K Love verse of the week, uh, Veggie Tale environment. In fact, uh, probably just the opposite. And then my next job, I lied about my age, falsified my birth certificate again, and I joined a longshoreman's union at about 16 or 17, and I wasn't old enough to work there, but I, I was a longshoreman. So if you have any wonder of what a longshoreman talks like, it's the exact opposite of a homeschool mom. So if you grew up in a deep Christian subculture, you were used to theological debates and Bible arguments and tertiary debates. I didn't know any of that. I didn't know the Christian language. I didn't know the Christian subculture. I didn't know there was Christian music. I didn't know. I didn't know that there were camps. I didn't know that there was pastors conferences. I didn't know any of this. So then I get saved. God saves me at the age of 19 in college. And next thing I know, boom, I feel like I get, uh, you know, 
rabbit holed into evangelical subculture. Well, next thing I know, um, you know, I'm going to church and I'm in Bible studies and I've got Christian friends and come to find that within the evangelical subculture, uh, there are some people that like to dialogue and discuss and debate matters of the Bible and theology. And I'm a nerd, so I actually enjoyed that and I found that fun. But then there were other people, it's just like, my gosh, they just will die on every hill. They fight over stupid things. And if you let them, they will suck the joy out of your life and the time out of your schedule. And, uh, and that was my experience. And that was before the internet. And so I'm so old, I'm 52. I have a degree in communications from the Edward R. Murrow School of Communications, one of the top five at the time in the country. But I got a communications degree before the internet, which is like getting a driver's license before the car. You know, used to driving a horse and buggy or a dinosaur. So now today, if you want to just waste all of your time and energy pontificating, arguing, theologizing, uh, social media, blogs, YouTube, you can get your whole life down a rabbit hole of making arguments, but not making relationships and winning arguments, but not winning people. And that's kind of the heart of what he's warning Timothy about that study and debate and, you know, dialogue is all good. But man, if you are just sucked into the fool's parade of idiots online, you're going to waste your whole life and not do anything. So here's what he says. Number one, ignore idiots. First uh, Timothy four verses six and seven. If you put these things uh, before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Here's what he's saying is, uh, you know what good sound doctrine is. And, um, and that word generally means healthy. When you hear the word sound doctrine in the Bible, it means healthy. You become an emotionally, mentally, spiritually healthy human being. You have a relationship with God. You're a relational person that does relationship with others. Um, there's the fruit and evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your life. And so sometimes people who study the most are the least healthy. They don't have a healthy relationship with God, their spouse, their kids, their friends, because they're arguing and debating and having head-on collisions, and they don't understand that the whole point of studying the Bible is to have a healthy relationship with God and with people. Um, That's what Jesus says, love God, love others. And so what he's talking about here is watching out, he says, have nothing to do. And there's certain people that all they want to do is argue or fight or convince you or just take your time and your energy over things you don't care about. So he says, draw a hard boundary. Just don't even have nothing to do with it. Like don't follow them on social media, block them. Do not check what they're doing online. Do not post one comment. Don't get sucked into it. If they're going to come up and have the argument with you at church, you know, pretend like you got to go to the bathroom and get in your car and drive away. Just ignore these people. And let me give you some examples. I'll give you um, four different categories uh, in our day that are really prevalent for uh, irreverent, silly, and myths. Um, I'll start with, uh, there's a story that Jesus tells, and there's two brothers in the story, the parable of the prodigal. One is the older brother, he's religious. And then there's the younger brother, he's rebellious. I think we talked about this in a previous episode. Most guys tend to be one of those two. If they have some church background or are currently Christians, um, they're either rebellious or religious. 
And the religious brother, well, he's kind of self-righteous and judgmental and hates grace and, you know, condescending. And then the rebellious brother, he's, you know, he's accepted Charlie Sheen in his heart and he's got his underwear, his outerwear. And, you know, um, you know, he's vaping and putting naughty things on the Internet. He's that guy. And so first and foremost, the first two categories of the four, um, the question would be, are you spending too much time and energy with a religious older brother, a religious person that has a religious spirit, um, which is prideful and critical and self-righteous, and or do you lean that way? And here's what the narrow, here's what the uh, religious older brother attitude will do. Number one, these people are highly uh, narrow in their theological convictions. Like they'd be hard reformed. It's not, well, unless you're a five point Calvinist, you're a heretic and don't believe in the gospel. You're like, well, limited atonement's weak. Oh my gosh, you, you've now denied the gospel. It's like, oh geez. And so those guys are like, you either believe in the five points of Calvinism or you're a heretic. Those are your two categories. There's the hard Pentecostals. Like, do you speak in tongues? Uh, did you speak in tongues today? Um, you know, how long did you speak in tongues for? And it becomes this sort of legalistic litmus test for your spirituality. The same can be in a narrow theological category, the hard cessationists. These are the guys that believe that the supernatural gifts and work of the Holy Spirit evidence in like the early church have ceased altogether or are so rare that it's uncommon. And then these guys just become sort of the police for Christianity. If everybody, if anybody says I had a dream or God told me or I saw a vision, they just freak out. And so these are the people that they just have such a narrow, hardened theological position that unless you fit within their tightrope of a walk with Jesus, um, they are constantly shooting at you. The religious older brother folks, too, can be the discernment folks. These are the people who think that they have the gift of discernment and what they have is a spirit of criticism. When they listen to, let's say, a Bible teacher or a leader, they're not listening humbly, like, what can I learn? How can I grow? Lord, what would you have for me? They're listening critically. What did they say or do wrong so that I could attack them and show them their error? And so their entire disposition is wrong. And you see this in the days of Jesus, where Jesus shows up to teach and the Pharisees show up to criticize him. They're not even taking notes. And they're assuming if he says something that we disagree with, he must be wrong. They don't even give the possibility that maybe if they disagree, they're wrong. There's no teachability in their attitude. And when you're dealing with people like this, their categories tend to be perfect and disqualified. So if you say or do anything that they don't agree with, then you're a false teacher, a heretic, a non-Christian, or you need to be disciplined, which leads me to the third group of older brother folks, uh, the religious, and these are the accountability folks. These are the weirdos who read the Bible and see account. Well, first of all, you know, good luck finding me accountability in the Bible, just as a word and as a concept, like there's no spiritual gift of accountability. Um, and within that, all accountability within the Bible is in the context largely of relationship. When the Bible talks about laying on of hands, that means that you're in relationship with someone that you're delegating authority to, and now they're accountable to you. And so the accountability folks will say like, well, Paul rebuked Hymenaeus and Alexander, so we're going to get on the internet and rebuke everybody. It's like, well, first of all, you're not Paul. 
And um, second of all, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who are in the book of First Timothy that we're studying as a case study, they were false teachers who were probably uh, in the pulpit and on the board at the local church. So we had to name them in the church of Ephesus because they were a real problem. There is no such thing as, you know, one Christian holding a pastor accountable in another church, city, state, or country. Um, and if anything, it should be leaders that are of note, um, you know, dealing with issues. That's why I like to attack issues way more than people. But what these accountability folks will do, they will try to hold everybody accountable by assembling a court online, which is really a mob. They will take minor um, objections or perceived character flaws, magnify them into massive uh, catastrophic globalizing issues. And it's what Jesus talked about with plank and speck. Uh, they're going to find something little in someone else and overlook, you know, the two by four in the lumber yard in their own eye. Usually they're not under authority. They're not in a church. Oftentimes they're not formally theologically educated. They don't publish what they're for, but who or what they're against. They live on clickbait, attacking Christian leaders, creating drama and gossip. There's usually church hurt that's involved. They're causing trauma and trigger for other people that have suffered harm. They assemble them like a mob. And, um, and all of it is ungodly and it's unspiritual and it's demonic. Are you a person that if you were to get sucked down the rabbit hole of what Paul calls irreverent, silly myths, and irreverent means it really doesn't honor God. Silly means if you really are sane and think it through, it's just kind of a waste of time and energy and myths, meaning it's conjecture and speculation and hyperbole, but it's not rooted in fact or reality. And then the other option, if you want to get sucked down the rabbit hole of wasting your time and energy, is the rebellious younger brother. And again, this is the guy who, you know, heads off to Vegas and is, uh, you know, sleeping with prostitutes and buying rounds of drink. And, you know, he's the guy just maxing out his credit card with bottle service at the strip club. He's that guy. Well, today, the rebellious uh, younger brothers they're, they're apostates, they're syncretists, they've taken over a lot of Christianity, and a lot of it's going to be around gender and sex. So any of the folks that don't believe in binary, traditional, male, female, gender, the folks that believe that marriage should be expanded beyond a man and a woman, uh, the folks who believe that sexuality should be expressed without any um, divine, God-given borders and boundaries in the Bible, these would be your younger brothers. And they're everywhere. They're flying the rainbow flags. They're pro-BLM. They get triggered if you don't use the right pronouns. They're going to celebrate Pride Month. They're into tolerance and diversity and inclusion. And woe is me tale-telling about you know, the evangelicals who rejected them and caused all their church hurt. And, and, and if you want to argue, if you want to, let me just say this, if you want to have sex with anyone or anything right now, you can find somebody on the internet who has some measure of following that makes some degree of argument to justify you sleeping with whomever or whatever you desire. And if you want to waste your time and energy on that, you're not going to be more godly. In addition, if you start arguing with these people, you're just going to waste the rest of your life. It's just, it's a complete waste of time and energy. Two other categories of people that you can waste your time and energy on. Number one, single issue voters. There are some Christians that it's, 
it's amazing. Kind of the forest and trees analogy. They'll open the Bible, they find one thing, and they lose sight of everything else. And that's the hill they're going to die on. It's one issue. Uh, these can be your folks like Bible translation folks, like the King James only people. My goodness, those people are nuttier than a planner's factory. Their arguments make no sense. They're completely circular. But to them, they are de- they are defending the church uh, from uh, demonic versions that are going to lead to the one world apostasy. And then they'll throw out words like Illuminati and Armageddon and make the whole thing sound like a Scooby-Doo episode. And they're usually just weird people. And it's weird, too, because I've never seen like the message only people that are willing to die on that hill. There's other people that, man, all they care about is creation. It's like they read Genesis 1 and 2, and they didn't make it any further. So they just want to declare war over age of the earth as if it had a born on date like a Bud Light. Um, You know, they want to argue over how big was the ark and how was the flood global or was it local and are the six days periods and epochs of time or literal 24 hour days. I have opinions on all of that. And of course, my position is right. Um, But for them, this goes from the open hand of like, you know, different people love Jesus, believe the Bible, have a few different interpretations to the closed handed. If you don't agree with me, you don't believe the Bible. If you don't believe the Bible, you're not a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, you're a false teacher. And I am just, you know, convinced that God has called me to destroy you before you destroy Christianity. And they just argue over everything and don't even bring up the subject of dinosaurs. Those people literally, their mind will melt. There are other people, too, that do the same thing. They're single-issue voters. All they care about is the end times. Rapture, Mark of the Beast. Um, I'll never forget. I was a brand-new Christian in a men's Bible study, and uh, one guy came, and I didn't know that there were, like, these eschatology end times, tinfoil hat people that, you know, had charted out the, uh, you know, the last day's uh, chart you know, on an ammo box and crayon. I didn't know that these people existed. And he showed up and he was trying to convince us all that 666 was Ronald Wilson Reagan and that Reagan was the Antichrist. And then when he got shot and came back, it was a counterfeit of the resurrection and that he worked for the Illuminati. I mean, and by the end, I was like, man, that is some good weed right there. That is some really good weed. All right, guys, Pastor Mark here letting you know about the latest book, New Days, Old Demons. It's a prophetic word against pathetic wokeness. Uh, You guys understand exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, Hopefully it is on sale. If not, it's coming out very, very soon. Would appreciate your prayers as we punch a lot of people and things in the mouth. And if it's a help, get a copy. And so he was just convinced that he had the whole thing figured out. You know, and there are certain people, they get so fixated on one area of theology or the Bible that every time you talk to them, the conversation goes back to the exact same ditch. They end up in it every time. And with those people, you tell them, look, I love you. There are other things in the Bible, um, you know, like Jesus. I mean, maybe we should go to the, the big E on the I chart and talk about Jesus. But those are the single issue voters. And if you start arguing with them, you'll be arguing with them for the rest of your life. And then the last category I would encourage you, irreverent, silly myths to avoid is Christian gossip, or as I like to call it, church porn. And that is that within the evangelical subculture, there's there's not a lot of true Bible-believing leaders left. And so people want to have clickbait and, you know, trend and get some attention. There's two ways to build a platform. 
do something or criticize someone who has done something. Those are the two ways. Doing something is hard. Criticizing someone who has done something is really, really easy. And so you'll see these weird outlandish speculations. And you need to know with public figures, libel, slander, and defamation laws don't equally apply. So people on blogs or social media or YouTube or whatever the case may be and the platform might be, they can say and do things that if you did it against just a private citizen, actually you'd go to jail because it's a crime. But that's why Saturday Night Live can lampoon a political candidate, but not their landscaper. So be very wary of Christian gossip and church porn. All kinds of bizarre things can be said. And how do I know this? Well, I've spent my life just dealing with nonsense and buffoonery. And, um, and you can either go out and correct every error. But if you do, you'll be wasting all your time on irreverent, silly myths. Um, or you can just keep teaching the Bible, move forward, love people and do good ministry, which is what Paul is encouraging Timothy to do. Um, and so the key is don't waste your time on arguing with people and defending yourself and getting into speculation and ch- chasing, you know, celebrity church porn gossip. Instead, here's what he does say to put your time and energy on chapter four, verse seven, train yourself for godliness. That's the focus. You're not spiritual because you can out-argue people. You're not spiritual because you could win a Bible Jeopardy episode. You're not spiritual because you've picked one issue as your hill to die on and you're going to convince everybody to join your cause. You're not spiritual because you critique and attack everybody. You need to take your time and energy, especially if you're a young man, to train yourself for godliness. And the language there is of like physical exercise and discipline. And part of being a disciple, same root word, is discipline. So he goes on to say, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. What he's saying is, we tend to, as most guys, if you're, you know, wise, you're going to take care of your body. Like, I'm going to stay hydrated. I'm going to watch my weight. I'm going to exercise. Some of you guys are the gym bros and, you know, you invest a lot in tank tops and protein shakes and water jugs. Thank you for that. Um, And what happens is so many guys are so worried about their body that they forget about their soul. And that's what he's saying. He says, disciplining and training the body is good, but the soul is better because your body and soul will benefit your life, but at the end of your life, you don't have your body. Your body goes into the ground, your soul goes to be with the Lord, at least until the resurrection. And so what he's saying is invest in the truest and deepest and eternal part of you, the soul. And you guys need to know that only Christianity really helps you do this. Um, For example, right now, if you're a young man, the latest CDC and Pew Research says that now depression, uh, mental health, anxiety, fear, suicidal ideation has a whole generation of young men largely paralyzed. They've moved back home with their mother during the COVID crisis. They are not in the labor force or looking for work, as we studied in a previous episode. They are not in a dating relationship, and they are not looking to date, looking to work, looking to launch, looking to own a home or, or, or marry. They, they're paralyzed. They're just stuck. And part of that is they have not trained themselves. They don't have discipline. 
And there's a whole generation that has been told, oh my gosh, you can't do, you're a victim, you have had trauma. Trauma is real, but most men have not been through trauma, they've been through trials. And trials make you stronger. And actually, if you'll heal from and grow through even your trauma, you'll use that to train yourself for godliness and get stronger. I was reading a, a good book by uh, Senator Josh Hawley. He just published it called uh, Manhood. And uh, it's on masculinity biblically and culturally and historically. And there was a study that he mentions that was done for world-class athletes who are sort of best in their field. And it said that um, the one thing they had in common is they had all been through profound trauma. And they learned how to use it to overcome and get stronger, to use Paul's language, to train themselves for godliness. And they came to the determination that the training for greatness is in the trial of trauma. And so the goal in life is not to go through trial and to avoid trauma, but to embrace trials. And if trauma does come, to try and find a way to repurpose it and use it and invest it and utilize it to make yourself stronger for the purpose of godliness. It's like going to the gym and lifting. You're like, the more resistance, what actually happens is you're tearing muscles to strengthen them and you're causing fatigue and pain to increase your pain tolerance. That's life. And most guys, and, and I'll say this too, for those of you guys that are the theological guys, and you're the Bible guys, and you're the nerd guys, and I am too. I co-wrote a systematic theology. It's got like a thousand footnotes. I've been teaching through books of the Bible for 30 years. I like to study. But at the end of the day, some guys will use theology and Bible study to avoid maturity, responsibility, and masculinity. They will use it like a fig leaf. Like I argue with people. It's like, yeah, but are you training yourself for godliness? Like, are you forgiving people? Are you working a job? Are you pursuing a woman? Are you paying off your debt? Are you investing in your church? Are you honoring leadership? Are you pulling up a younger guy? Are you submitting to a spiritual father? Are you investing in your children? Are you working hard at your job? Or are you just another Christian jackalope who's arguing theology, thinking that because you know Greek words um, and Latin phrases that that makes you like the Apostle Paul? It doesn't. Because God didn't make us just to win arguments, but to live lives, to bear fruit, and to make a difference. So he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And then he goes on to say, uh, the saying is true and deserving of full acceptance. For this end, we toil, we labor, we work. And again, too many guys think that if they study and argue, they're masculine. What makes you a man is not only studying, but then getting up and doing what the Bible says. The Bible says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Any study that doesn't end in action and obedience and trial and toil and sweat and perseverance is literally, um, it's literally using the Bible to hide from your responsibilities as a man. He says, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And what he's saying there is that Jesus Christ benefits everybody, specifically those who are Christians. And without getting too detailed into it, um, you know, Christianity has brought literacy to the world, education to the world. It has uh, brought charity to the world. It has brought um, uh, the rule of law and equality to the world. It has brought beauty to the arts. Um, 
without Christianity, the world is a far more dark, deadly, demonic, and dangerous place. And so what he's saying is that Jesus has benefited the whole world, especially those who are saved and his um, forgiven who are going to be with him forever. He says, command and teach these things and let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers as an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. And what he's saying is don't waste your time arguing with people. Don't speculate. Don't become an esoteric monk that just sort of lives in your head and argues over tertiary, secondary responsibilities. And I'd say this too. This is where sometimes a guy who doesn't have a wife or a kid or a mortgage, he becomes a weirdo because all he's doing is thinking and pontificating and arguing rather than working and serving and accomplishing. And so what he says is, discipline yourself, work hard, do read the Bible, but read it for action, not argument, to get things done, not just to conquer uh, syllogisms. And he says, get started as young as possible. And so what happened here, there was the church at Ephesus, Paul planted it, he knew that some of the leadership was bad. He said this in Acts 20 at an elders meeting. After I leave, men from your own number will arise, distort the truth, lead many astray, and, and, and they're wolves, so be on guard. And then he sails away, and he sends Timothy into the fight. And, he, and so a few times in the book, it talks about the good fight. And so Timothy is literally having a good fight. But what he's having a good fight with, he's having a fight with people who are more theological and want to argue, but they're not godly and they don't have the spirit. And, and just reminding this too, Satan knows the Bible. He uses it on Jesus and uh, he used it on Adam and he'll use it on you. And sometimes the most religious demonic people, they're going to quote verses and they'll use that sword to stab God's people. And what he says is, don't look th let them look down on you. And what they were saying is, well, we're older and you're younger, so we don't need to listen to you. And Paul's saying, actually, I've sent you a delegated apostolic authority and don't let them look down on you because you're young. And don't get insecure, but instead set an example. So rather than dishonoring older men, if you're a younger man, um, outwork them, out serve them, out pray them, out give them, out, out fruit them. Uh, if I could use that language, um, don't get insecure and just, you know, sort of put your tail between your legs and cower like a puppy and don't get angry and go snap and bite at them set an example. And the language here for, um, he says, don't let them despise you because of your youth. The commentators will debate, but in Jewish culture, you were considered a young man, some would say up to age 30. And most of what I've read would say up to age 40. So a young man could even be in his 20s or 30s. Um, but most commentators would agree in Jewish culture, by 40, you're just a grown man. And I would say, for those of you guys who are younger, hold a lot of your theology in the open hand until maybe you're around 40. Um, give it some time to play out and some real world application as well. Um, don't aspire, you know, don't push yourself up the top of some very significant senior leadership position too early. I did that as a young man. I got God's calling right, but not his timing. So I was a senior pastor at 25. And what I should have done is waited. It wouldn't have hurt. It actually would have saved some pain. And so what he's telling Timothy is, you know, you're still a young man and that's not bad. But let me say this, you have a right to be your age. If you're 20 and a new Christian, you're 20 and a new Christian. If you're 30 and you've been walking with Jesus for two years, 
welcome to the team, but you know, you're new on the field. If you're 40 and you've been walking with Jesus for 20 years, well, you're in a different place. And all you can do as a man is live your life and minister your ministry out of where you are in your experience. When I was 25 and a senior pastor and I had no kids, now I'm 52 and I got five kids and two are married and one's engaged and I got two grandkids on the way. I know a lot more and I've seen a lot more and I've experienced a lot more and I think I can help a lot more hopefully. Um, and it doesn't mean I was in sin at 25. It means 25, you're a new Christian, new husband, and not a father. There's just some things you haven't learned yet and be humble enough to say, I'm not going to have a strong opinion on those things. I'm not going to get legalistic until I've gotten to that life stage. And I just assume that I'll figure it out when I get there. And then the last thing he says is just stay in your lane. And as a man, this is like, this is like figuring out for you, like, what are the most important things that God has called you to do? Just be comfortable with who you are. There's a line that Paul uses elsewhere that sort of echoes this. He says, fulfill your ministry. God doesn't want you to fulfill someone else's ministry. You got your thing, they got their thing. And everybody just needs to be humble, have a sense of expectation for the future, but contentment with the present and just stay in your lane. And so like for me, I'm a Bible teacher primarily who um, has a heart for men. That's my lane. I've been in my lane for three decades. I just need to stay in my lane. Uh, I am not a Christian yoga instructor. That's not my lane. Uh, I am not going to ever make it in Cirque du Soleil. That is not my lane. I will never work for a transgender bishop. That is not my lane. I'm a Bible teaching, traditional, heterosexual, Christian male with alpha tendencies. That's my lane. So here's what he says. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. And in that day, uh, most people didn't have a copy of the Bible because Johann Gutenberg hadn't invented the printing press yet. So when they got together, they would read the Bible so everybody could hear it. There was a certain percentage as well who were illiterate. Um, but there is something important, not just in reading the word, but in hearing it. Paul says in Romans, faith comes by hearing the word of God. And so I would encourage you, maybe start uh, as you're reading the Bible, read it aloud. And there is another level, because now you're not just using your eyes, but your ears, you're, in, you're increasing the input. And also there's things like the YouVersion Bible app, if you want to just go through the Bible. There's actually a, a feature to read it to you. And uh, through Real Faith, we've actually got a full Bible reading app, take you through the whole Bible in a year for free on version. But then you could even be listening to it in the car or on your walk or your hike or your workout or your, your chores or whatever. And so what he's saying is, you know, make sure that God's word is heard uh, to exhortation and to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that uh, you have, which was given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. What he's saying is when they, and so ministry is this, one person who's like a spiritual father lays hands on somebody who's a son or a spiritual son, and it's like Elijah and Elisha, it is confirmation, it is a transference of blessing, and it is the sharing and delegating of spiritual authority. And today we would call this ordination, but really that's sometimes too non-relational. Paul's like a father, Timothy's like a son, and you can only really be sent into ministry from someone who's close enough to you that they can literally lay hands on you. That's why, you know, just having an internet pastor is not the way that this works. Uh, it needs to be somebody who's present in your life. But a prophecy was given 
about his ministry and his calling. And Paul doesn't tell us exactly what that was, but what he says is, you were prophesied over, and as your spiritual father, I told you in the Holy Spirit what your lane was. I had that as a young man. God spoke to me audibly, said, Mary Grace, preach the Bible, train men, plant churches. And even in this season that I'm in now, uh, there was a prophetic word spoken over this season of my ministry by Pastor Jimmy Evans, that I would be a spiritual father and invest in a younger generation of men. And and this podcast is evidence that that prophecy was true. And so there are false prophecies, but the Bible says don't treat prophecies with contempt. And so instead you need to test them. But there are genuine prophetic words outside of scripture. Uh, They're not over the scriptures. They're tested by the scriptures. But Paul says that Timothy had one of those. He goes on to say, practice these things, immerse yourself in them. That's the training for godliness. It's like, how's your prayer life? How's your worship life? How, are you part of a local church? Do you have good relationships? Are you in a healthy community? Do you have like a spiritual father ahead of you who's pulling you up? Do you have a brother who's kind of behind you that you're pulling up? Do you have a brother alongside of you who's walking with you? He's asking Timothy like, hey, just keep going in these things. Keep these healthy habits in place. Immerse yourself in them so that you may see progress. And I want to say this. He doesn't say so that you can be perfect. And you're never going to be perfect. None of us are in this life. But what we can all pursue is progress. And so don't just look and say, gosh, these are the things I've not figured out yet. Look back and say, well, these are the things by God's grace have made progress. And I would encourage you, if you do have the Holy Spirit and you're with Jesus, you've made progress. And I want to encourage that. And I want to use that to encourage you to make more progress in the areas that are yet undone. And so for the Christian, and I don't care if you're an 85-year-old guy listening to this, there's still areas for you to make progress. It is a constant, humble pursuit of the likeness of Jesus Christ that we never fully achieve, but by God's grace, we can make progress. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and your hearers. And so if you're a man, you're not only responsible for yourself, but others. If you're a husband, your wife is a hearer. If you're a father, your kids are your hearers. If you're a ministry leader, or a business leader, who is looking up to you, who is listening to you, keep an eye on yourself and them. When you're a boy, somebody takes care of you. When you're a young man, you take care of yourself. When you're a grown man, you start taking care of other people. And this is what he's telling Timothy, take care of yourself as a grown man, take care of other people as well. And he goes on, um, keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Some translations will say your life and your doctrine and persist in this for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. I'll close with this. What he's saying is, you know, watch your life, watch your doctrine. Christianity is two things. It's beliefs and it's behaviors. Beliefs are doctrinal theological convictions. And he says that at the beginning, he talks about the good or sound doctrine that Timothy has. And then he talks about training himself for godliness, which is the behavior. Those who are more belief Christians, I like to say, are kind of like Romans Christians. They think in theological, categorical terms. Those who are more behavior Christians, they think more like Proverbs, action-oriented. And what he says is, to be a healthy, mature man of God, it's the belief and the behavior. It's Romans and Proverbs. It's theology and practical daily living. So my two questions for those of you that are in groups. Number one, you personally, 
if you were going to err, would you be more of an older brother, get into the silly irreverent myths of the older brother, the religious, or would you be more prone toward the rebellious, the younger brother? Number two, your strength, is it more behavior or belief? Are you more Romans or Proverbs? And if so, how can the other guys in the group help you grow in godliness and train yourself so that you are not like the older brother or the younger brother, uh, but you're like the guy who tells the story, Jesus, who's not the younger son or the older son. He's the son of God. And also, if you're a guy who's all about the belief but weak on the behavior, you need to learn from those guys. If you're the guy who's all about the behavior but weak on the belief, you need to learn from those guys. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you again next week. Pastor Mark here saying thank you for giving me the honor of helping you to learn God's word. In a world filled with bad news, you need some good news. In a world filled with lies, you need some truth. And so as I like to say, it's all about Jesus. We open the Bible and we help people learn about Jesus Christ. And I just want to say, uh, if you would help me get the word of God out, it would mean the world to me. You can go to realfaith.com mountain of Bible teaching. I mean, we're coming up on three decades of Bible teaching. And or if you just go to 99383 and text the word unfiltered, again, that's 99383 unfiltered. We'll send you a link that'll open up literally thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of free Bible teaching.